In John chapter 4, um, this, today we are uh, kicking off our Missions Emphasis Month. I talked about it briefly at the beginning uh, of the service and where we're going to be taking up uh, special offerings throughout the whole month uh, to go towards uh, the different missions offerings that we give to uh, during the year. And I encourage you to uh, pray about that and ask the Lord uh, what he would have you to give uh, to go towards those different offerings. They always go towards um, uh, very special ministries and enables us to send missionaries uh, around the world uh, and enables us to uh, have missionaries in the United States even and in Oklahoma. Uh, it uh, goes towards different ministries, uh, different things that go on in our state and in our nation uh, in order to uh, continuing to advance the gospel. Uh, from a convention level, and so I encourage you to pray about what you uh, can give towards that. Uh, but there's always a danger uh, when it comes to taking offerings for, uh, for missions emphasis, and the danger is that there are some people in some churches that hide behind their offering. What I mean by that is when, if you were to ask the average Southern Baptist church member if they are a missions church, most would say absolutely. And if you were to ask them why they believe that, most would say because we give to the cooperative program or because we give money towards missions. Now, that's a great ministry, and the church ought to do that. I, I believe uh, with everything that's in me that uh, the cooperative program is a great uh, ministry. I believe it's what enables uh, the churches to come together uh, and be able to do more uh, than they could do by themselves. For example, uh, there's really no way, I don't believe, that our church on our own uh, could support a missionary around the world to be somewhere where they can just preach the gospel in that area and try to win that area, where we might not be able to do that, and maybe First Baptist Dustin can't do that, and maybe First Baptist Henrietta can't do that. If we were to come together, then together we can do that's what the purpose of the cooperative program is. And, and so these ministries are important, and I think we ought to give to them uh, and, and, and support those different missions opportunities. However, in the same time, the danger is that we use that as our missions crutch, meaning that we sometimes say we do missions, but really what we do is pay someone else to do missions. You see, there's a great thing in having an offering, but just giving an offering does not free us from being a missions people ourselves. See, Walika First Baptist Church has a, a, a priority to be a missions church. We just finished a series called God's Dream Team, and we looked at the different elements that are required of a church to be the church that God has called them to be, that God literally dreams for them to be, and the very last aspect of that we looked at was that they are to be a church of mission, that they have a mission to accomplish. We've been sent out. We've been told to go and to make disciples of the whole world, and so we need to do that, and giving of our money is a part of that, but giving of our money is not all there is to being a missions people. And so while we are uh, give, taking this offering, which we should, in here, we're going to be looking at God's Word and looking at different aspects of being a missions people ourselves. And today we're going to start by looking at a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's going to use a picture, a correlation picture, of a harvest in relation to our 
our spiritual mission as the church. And so if you have your Bibles open with me this morning, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word in John chapter 4, <coughs> excuse me, starting in verse 27, and we're going to read down through verse 38, the Word of God says this, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Now, if you don't know the background, this is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you'll remember, uh, they get into this long conversation about the living water. Jesus is the living water. Um, uh, the woman's not married. He calls. He he tells her, "You're right. You're not married. Uh, you've been married so many times, and the man you're with now is not your husband." And all this. That's why he's telling the people, "This guy's told me everything I've ever done. Could it be the Messiah?" And so Jesus has encountered this woman. He's talking to her, and then he he's telling her some different things. And so she left, and she goes tells people about him and asks. Asked them, this may be the Messiah. And then in verse 30, they left the town and made their way to him. But look in verse 31. It says, in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? So now they're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Food? I, well, you don't have any food. Did someone bring him something? And he says this in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus told them, don't you see? There are still four more months, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. And now as we begin to examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase and that the words that be shared today would be yours and not mine. And Father, you would speak to us through your word and that we would respond how you lead us to respond. So I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're like a lot of people, um, spring is a great season. I, I love spring. Uh, yesterday was beautiful. Uh, the day before was beautiful, except for all the wind. But uh, I'll take that any day of the week over what we had a week ago. Um, not just because I had the flu, but because I just don't like really, really cold weather. I just love spring. And the reason why I love spring is because things start to turn green again. You start to see some life again. All the... The trees begin to blossom, the flowers begin to come out, the grass begins to turn green, and even though that means you have to mow it more, I'd rather look at green grass than brown grass. And, and so I, I, love, I love spring and I always have, uh, but one of the things about spring is it's, it's the season, it's one of the two seasons for planting for a farmer or, or for a gardener. We had this gentleman at our church in Sulphur where I lived that lived right by the golf course, and so I got to know him really well, as you can imagine, uh, when I first went there because I was a part-time youth pastor, so I only had to be in the office one day a week, and 
Jenna was still in school. And so like any good husband, I would spend my day being, um, uh, making good use of my time by spending it on the golf course. And so uh, I would, uh, but I got to meet this guy and we struck up a good relationship with him. He was a, he's a great guy, uh, but, but he loved his garden. And I got to watching him when it come to his garden because he wasn't just some run-of-the-mill gardener. He, he took his garden very seriously. And I'm getting to watch him, and every year he would go out before uh, the spring season would hit, and he'd begin to get it ready. He was getting rid of all the old stuff, and he'd kind of clearing out his garden for it. And then when it first started to kind of change weather, he'd get out there and start tilling it up. And, and then when the, part, the time was right, he'd begin to plant his seeds. And, and he really took care of that. He had a, a watering system that he had set up. It was pretty neat. And and, and he just really took it seriously, and because of that, every year, he had a great garden. And I, you know, other than maybe some green beans, I'm not a real big vegetable guy, but I would imagine if you love vegetables, then it's good to have a good garden every year. And he would go out and he would do the work. Now, the thing that I noticed was every year he had a good garden, but it didn't just happen. He didn't just have a good garden. He had a good garden because he worked at it. He did what was necessary in order to have a harvest every single year. Well, in John chapter 4, Jesus correlates our mission to that of a harvest, and he begins to give us some principles uh, that we need to apply in order for us to have a spiritual harvest every year or every day or whatever time frame you want to put in that. And uh, really this morning in John 4, there's a few things I really want to point out to you that are necessary and needed in order for us to, to have the spiritual harvest that I believe God wants us to have as a church. The first thing that Jesus told his disciples in verse 35 is if they wanted to see a great harvest, they needed to look up or they needed to lift their eyes. Look at it in verse 35 again. He says, don't you say there are still four more months, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for the harvest. Now, he's not talking about um, a physical harvest of food. What, what's he talking about? Well, go, go back up and you'll see it. Look at verse 29. Uh, this is the woman talking to the men in the town. She said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town, and they made their way to him. And so Jesus is talking. They're talking about food, and did they bring him something to eat? Who fed him? He's got this food that we don't have. What's he talking about? And then he says, Look, you say in four months the harvest will be ready. I'm telling you right now to look up and see the harvest. Well, what would they have seen when they looked up? The people coming towards Jesus. And so the first thing he tells them that if they want to see a spiritual harvest is they needed to look up. Now, why is it important to lift up their eyes? Well, when they're looking up, that enables them to see the potential that's in front of them. You know, sometimes as the church, I believe that, um, that we, we get so busy in doing what we're doing, we just put our head down and we're going to, I guess what you'd call, put it to the plow and we got our head down and we're just pushing forward with everything we have, but when our heads are down, we don't see anything. 
And, and sometimes we get so um, we get so in tune with what we're doing, or we get so frustrated because we don't see anything happening that we forget to look up and see that there is potential around us. Now, I'll be, I'll be the first to admit to you the potential in Walika is a little bit different than the potential in Tulsa. I mean, I would hope everybody in this room would agree with that. From a numbers perspective, that's true. From a spiritual perspective, that's not true. See, from a numbers perspective, we will never have the potential that Tulsa has because we don't have the number of people that Tulsa has. But from a spiritual perspective, we have every bit as much potential as Tulsa has because we have people that are lost in our area. And sometimes we get so busy doing other things that we miss the people that are out there. And so Jesus is telling them, listen, look up. See the harvest. It's there. You have to be willing <coughs> to see the potential. Now, when they looked up and saw the people, I can assure you that those disciples didn't see potential. They may have looked up and saw people coming to Jesus, but they would not have seen them as a potential. Why? Because of who they were. Who were the people that were coming to Jesus? They were Samaritan men. Samaritan men from the town. If you know anything about the Jews, you know this. <coughs> Excuse me. They didn't think too highly of Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were um, literally, in the Jews' eyes, half-breeds. And, and Samaritans get their, um, their history are tied all the way back to the book of Ezra. And in Ezra, they got mad when Ezra returned. And, and the reason they got mad is because these people were not allowed to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. Because they couldn't prove who they were. <coughs> they couldn't prove their Jewish ancestry. So they weren't allowed to get involved in the rebuilding of the temple, and so they, they, weren't, they didn't like the Jews, and so what they did is they went to a different mountaintop called Mount Gerizim, and they, they started their own worship, their, their own rival worship, and it was a corrupted form of worship at that. And so they didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like them because they saw them as half-breeds who couldn't prove they were Jewish, yet they claimed to be Jewish. And then, to make matters worse, they went to a different mountaintop and started a corrupted form of worship. That's where Jesus and the Samaritan woman, that's what they were talking about. Remember, the woman says, why do you say we need to worship here, and we say we need to worship there? They were, there was a difference there. They didn't get along whatsoever. And so when the men looked up and saw, they might have saw people coming, but just looking up isn't what it takes to see the need or see the potential. Because I guarantee you, when they looked up and saw the Samaritan men coming to the Jesus, what they saw was an inconvenience or a problem not a potential brother in Christ. I think there's a lot of churches, and sometimes we may fall into that, where we may be a little guilty of that ourselves. Whereas we may look up and see people, but we, we don't see their potential. We may see them as an inconvenience or as a problem. I, I've actually served in some churches that 
probably wouldn't come right out and say this. One in particular might not come out and say this, but their over, overarching belief was we don't want those people here. Because the reality is when you start, when you start reaching lost people or when you start reaching people, people have sin. Sin is dirty. Sin is hard. Sin is filthy. And, and, and some churches don't want no part of that. Don't bring them in here. They might get our carpet dirty. Now, they may not literally mean the carpet, although I've been in one church that they literally meant the carpet. But it's a spiritual issue. They might get us dirty. And, and that's probably what the disciples thought when Jesus told them to look up and see the harvest. Harvest? That's not a harvest. Those are those half-breeds that we don't want nothing to do with because they corrupted worship. And Jesus said, no. No, they are the harvest. And in order for them to see it, they were going to have to look up and they were going to have to look past their differences. You and I have to be willing to do the same thing in the harvest. There are going to be people that God's going to call us to go to that don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't act like us, don't even agree with us, yet they are a part of the harvest that God desires. And if we can't lay down our differences to go to them, we'll never see the harvest. And so the first thing that he tells them was that they needed to lift up their eyes because that would enable them to see the potential that was right in front of them. But also lifting up your eyes enables you to see the need. See, it would have been easy for the disciples to go, they don't need to come into our harvest. They have their own worship. They're okay. They're, they're, they're fine. We don't agree with them, but they've got their own thing going. They're not bothering anybody. Why should we bother them? That sounds a little bit like some of our culture today. They don't have to believe what we believe. As long as they're sincere, let them believe what they want. They're, let's just go after those that don't believe in anything. Now, we, we might not say that, but that's the way some people believe. How many of you have ever heard someone say, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what you believe? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Do you know that, I read something the other day, do you know that um, over half, over half, of all millennial Christians in America believe that it is wrong to share their faith? No, don't just don't share it. They believe it's wrong because they feel like that is pushing off their belief on someone else. It's not my place to push my belief off on someone else. How easy could the disciples have done that? Why are we trying to push off what we believe? They, they've, they, we had this difference hundreds of years ago in Ezra, and, and it was settled back then, Jesus. They went to their own mountain. They created their own worship. We don't agree with it, but that is what it is. They're fine. Let's leave them alone. Let's just look for the other people. Basically, let's just look for people that are like us that just don't know Jesus yet. But that's not what Jesus wanted. He wanted them to see the need of the people right in front of them. 
And the fact of the matter is that no matter how good of worship the Samaritans had, it was still a corrupted form of worship, and it was never going to get them into a relationship with God. See, you and I need to remember something, that no amount of religion can save anyone. No, no amount of worship, whether or not it's true worship or corrupted worship, can save anyone. The only thing that can save anyone is a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus tells them to look up, not only just for them to see the potential, but he tells them to look up so that they'll see the need. These people have a need. You may not like them. You may not agree with them. They may not look like you. They may not talk like you. They may not agree with you. But they have a need. And if you don't look up, you're not going to see their need. You and I won't either. If we got our heads down and we're just putting our heads down and just going about our everyday, what we're supposed to be going about, we won't look up and see the people and we won't see the need that they have right in front of them. And their greatest need is Jesus. That's their greatest need. And so for a harvest to take place, the church has to lift up their eyes so that they can see the potential that's in front of them and that they can see the need that's in front of them. And, and there's lots of need today in our culture. We, we live in a culture where over half of our millennials don't believe it. They believe it's wrong to share their faith. We also live in a culture where like 80-something percent of our culture identifies themselves as Christian, yet only 25% or 30% believe that the only way to heaven is Jesus. We, we live in a culture that has so many different beliefs out there that we as the church need to remember that being an American doesn't mean being a Christian. We also live in a world today where we need to remember that going to church doesn't mean they're a Christian either. Or being a good old boy doesn't mean they're a Christian either. I, I want you to know, church, there were some things that's happened in our past in the history of the church in America that's caused some, some problems when it comes to this. Because I guarantee you, we have churches full of people that are lost, but they don't know they're lost. Well, there, you, you can, any number of reasons... Anything from an easy believism where we didn't preach repentance and faith to where we preach just bow your head and pray this prayer irritates the fire out of me. Because you can't get saved without repentance and you can sit there and pray all the prayers you want, but if you don't repent, oh, well, you, oh, wait, if we preach repentance, nobody will respond. Wait a minute, when did it become our job to decide who responds? That's God's job. We're just to preach. Let him deal with it. That's his job. Our job's to preach the word, the truth. And so we live in a culture where there's an enormous need for true salvation. And we have a bunch of people that think they have it that don't. Simply because they've never repented of their sin. They've never placed their faith in Christ. They've been in church. They know all about Jesus. They can give you all the right answers. They may have even been baptized. They may even give towards offerings to go to missions. They may even be on the mission field. 
yet they've never simply repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. And if they haven't done those two things, they're lost. But let me tell you something. One of the most dangerous places to be is in a church and be lost. Because no matter how many times a preacher stands in front of you and tells you those things, there's always in the back of your mind, I'm okay. I come to church, I'm a good person. I don't care how good you are. If you haven't repented of your sin and you haven't placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus, nothing else will do. But we have churches full of people that haven't done those two things. And we have other churches that not only have they not done those things, but in their church they'll never hear that they need to repent and place their faith in Jesus. So yes, we, we live in a culture of a very confused people when it comes to true salvation, just like the Samaritans, by the way, a very confused group of people who had a very wrong idea of God and how to worship him. And so Jesus says, lift up your eyes, see the potential, and see their need. They have both. And so do we, right in front of us. And then the second thing that he tells them is not only does he tell them lift up their eyes, but he makes a very profound statement in verse 35. Look at it again, verse 35. He says, don't you say there are still four more months, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. Listen, here's the profound statement. For they are ready for the harvest. They are already ready. The harvest is ready. That is a very profound statement. Because Jesus is telling his disciples that the harvest is ready right in front of them. It's a ready harvest. It's a ripe harvest. Now, as I close this morning, let me share with you three things about a ripe harvest. That it would have meant for them the same thing, that it mean, and it means the same thing for us today. Number one, a harvest that is ready, or a ripe harvest is ready to be brought in. It's ready to be brought in. When they looked up and saw the people, Jesus wanted them to see their potential and he wanted them to see their need, but he also made sure they knew they were ready to be brought in. Why were they ready? Because they were coming to the right person for the first time. They were coming to Jesus for the first time, and they were ready. If they had went to any other person or anywhere else, they wouldn't be ready. The only way anyone is ever ready to come into the harvest, to be a ripe harvest, is if they come to Jesus. But they can't come to Jesus if they're never told to come to Jesus. Who told them to come? The woman did. The woman met Jesus. And then the woman went and said, listen, you need to come see this guy. He told me everything I've ever done. Is he the Messiah? And so they came. You and I have to go tell people where to go. They have to come to Jesus. And if we don't do that, we're never going to be a church of harvest. Because a harvest is ready to come in, but a harvest is only ready when they come to the right place. And the only way they can come to the right place is if they know where to go. And the only way they can know where to go 
is if the church goes and tells them where they need to go. That's why we were told to go out to them. So a ripe harvest is ready to be brought in. Secondly, a ripe harvest or a ready harvest will not come in by itself. I, I don't know. I'm not much of a farmer. I don't, I don't have much of a green thumb. But I think it might be nice if I was just to be able to look at a, a farm and say, all right, it's ready. Oh, come on in now. And just have all the harvest just fall off the plants and right into the bushels and brought right into my garage and, and the I never even had to do this, thank the Lord, because I don't think I'd like it very much. But I don't have to, I don't think I've ever, sh what's it called, shell a pea or shuck a green bean or what do you call it? I don't know. <coughs> never done any of that in my life, but it don't look very fun. Wouldn't it be nice just to look out and say, hey, it's ready. Y'all come in now because I'm ready for you. <laughs> I like green beans. I'm ready to have some green beans. So y'all come on in now. That'd be nice, but that's just really not the way it works. You drive by a field, if no one ever goes out in that field and harvests it, it ain't coming nowhere. And it's never, right? Someone has to go get it and bring it in if it's going to be ready, if it's going to be harvested. And that's what Jesus says, a ripe harvest has to be brought in. You and I can't just sit back and wait on the harvest to come to us. Probably the most profound statement I'm going to make this morning is this, and I've said it before, and probably other preachers have, but the lost people of the world were never commanded to come into the church, but the church was commanded to go to the people. Why? Because a harvest will not come in by itself. In another place, it's related to fishing. Same thing. Fish don't just randomly jump in the boat. You have to go out to where they are. Like, I can love fishing, and I can have all the right gear, but if all I ever do is stand at First Baptist Church Walika in this pulpit, I'm never going to catch any fish. Because there's no fish in here. You see what I'm saying? I can sit on my front porch and I can cast that out in the yard and reel that thing back in. Hopefully I don't get tied up on a piece of grass or something. But I'm never going to catch any fish because there's no fish there. If you want to go fishing, you've got to go where the fish are. If you want to have a harvest, you've got to go where the plants are. A harvest has to be harvested. It will not come in by itself. And by the way... We have to go to them and bring it in. And a church that's not willing to do that will never be a church of a harvest. You'll never experience a harvest. And then the last thing is a ripe harvest or a ready harvest takes effort to be brought in. Not only do we have to go to them, but I want you to know, church, it's work. It's, it's toil. Matter of fact, look at how Jesus kind of says this. Is <coughs> he says, open your eyes and look at the fields so they're ready for harvest. Look at verse 36. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. 
For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Do you notice that word labor three times in there? It's not easy. Harvesting ripe fruit is not easy work. It's a laborious work. It's a toilful work. It takes effort on your part and on my part. And this is where some churches miss out on being a church of harvest. They simply aren't willing to put in the effort. They're willing to hide behind offerings and say, we put in the effort. Or they're willing to pay an evangelist to come in to draw people in so they can put forth effort. Or, or, or even this, some churches, we're willing to pay a preacher, a good one, and that can really preach so people can hear the message and be brought in, but we don't want to do any work. Guys, I can tell you, you can bring in all the evangelists you want, and you can bring in a lot better preachers than I can, or than I can preach, and I can tell you that there's only so much a preacher and evangelist can do. I, I, it's, just, it's just reality. I'm sorry, I'm human. I have limitations too. You know this, guys. I'm not I'm not telling you something you don't already know. You know that I'm human. I've been pretty transparent in front of you for almost seven years. Y'all know I'm not perfect. I don't claim to be perfect. I have limitations. So do you. But I guarantee you that we can do a lot more together than I can ever do by myself. We can do a lot more together than some evangelists can do by themselves. And this is where a lot of churches fall short of the harvest. They want to send one person into the field, or two people maybe, maybe a group of five, while the rest of them sit back and just enjoy the fruit. But that's not the way Jesus designed his church. Jesus designed his church that every member of it would be a laborer in the field. You have a field that I'll never have. I have a field you'll never have. Because you have a sphere, a circle of people in your life that I don't have. I have a sphere, a circle of people in my life that you'll never have. And so we need all of us in the field in order to accomplish the harvest that we have. We can't just sit in the barn and continue to sharpen our tools by the way, a sharp tool is really useful when it comes to a harvest. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with coming to church and being sharpened. But if all we do is sit in here and have our tools sharpened, but we never go out in the field, we're never going to be a church of harvest. So Jesus tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But if you want to see it, you got to look up first. Because if you don't look up, you won't see the potential, you won't see the need. Oh, and by the way, when you do look up, you need to realize that that harvest... It's ready, and it's ready because they're coming to Jesus. Why are they coming to Jesus? Because someone told them to. And so you and I need to do the same thing. That's why Jesus said, listen, someone else has labored, but you're about to re reap the reward. When you go out and labor, you may be the one that takes the gospel out, but you may not be the one that gets to sow, or you may not be the one that gets to reap it. Someone else might. But you're a sower, you're a laborer at different times, and we all are in this together.
So if you want to be a church of harvest, you need to lift up your eyes, see the potential, see the need, and you need to realize that the harvest is ready. But a ready harvest has to be brought in. It won't come in by itself, and it takes effort on your part and on my part.